Welcome to Broadway's Backbone with Brad Bradley, a podcast dedicated to the men and women of the ensemble, the chorus of dancers, singers, and actors that are the foundation of every Broadway musical. These often unsung gypsies are the hardest working people on the boards and are, well, Broadway's backbone. Welcome to a special edition, episode 83, and my guest is Bobby Staggert. Bobby has appeared on Broadway in Mothers and Sons, Big Fish, Ragtime, 110 in the Shade, and Mastered Herald in the Boys. Award nominations include Drama Desk, Outstanding Featured Actor in a Musical, Big Fish, Outstanding Actor in a Musical, Yank, Outstanding Featured Actor in a Musical, Ragtime, Outstanding Featured Actor in a Musical, The Slug Bearers of Cairo Island, Outer Critics Circle Award nominations, Outstanding Featured Actor in a Musical, Ragtime, Outstanding Featured Actor in a Musical, 110 in the Shade, and Tony Award nomination, Best Featured Actor in a Musical for Ragtime. Please welcome my newly graduated and licensed social worker, Bobby Steger. Good afternoon. I'm sitting here with Bobby Steger. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I said, <laughs> and we're up in Inwood where there's a beautiful uh, park outside. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited that you're here. So I want to just get started and ask you where are you from and how did you get started? I am from Frederick, Maryland. It was a very kind of straightforward southern mid-Atlantic suburban upbringing. So arts really weren't much in the picture. But I started singing in choirs, and I guess I had a a propensity for singing, but I also really, really loved the sense of belonging I felt in choirs, and really made my first real significant friendships in choirs. And, you know, for being a kind of shy, young, gay kid, like, real connection felt, like, really valuable and and rare for me. It was really important that I found music. And then uh, through that, I, you know, got into some local musical theater, and I just kept on getting encouraged by the people around me, I think, who saw that I could really disappear into the material. Mm. Like, I was really able to lose myself. And looking back, I think it's because I really needed a place to lose myself. Um, I think a lot of actors understand that. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, in here you have all of your grandfather's records. Yeah. So, was he a part of your life? Not really. I mean, my dad was one of um, eight siblings, and so we would spend Christmases there, and as the patriarch of the family, he was a part of my life, but I didn't really know him. He died pretty young in his early 70s, but he was obsessed with Broadway musicals. So my dad growing up says that about every year, one kid out of the eight would get to go to a Broadway show with with his parents, and it was like a really special trip, and they, they tried to do that for every kid throughout the years. My grandfather just absolutely loved musicals. He had a, a den in which um, every show he'd ever seen, there was a framed poster on the wall. And I remember being a kid during those Christmas trips going in and just staring up at like the, the, the vast kind of cathedral wall and seeing all these beautiful, colorful show posters and sort of dreaming about being part of that world one day. That's amazing. Yeah. I have a question later about this, but since you've already brought it up, mm-hmm. you refer to yourself several times in things I've read as a shy gay kid. Yeah. So... How did, did you know at an early age that you were gay? Yeah, I mean, I had this, I talk to queer people about this all the time. We all have a very different story. It's really diverse, our experiences, really. But I knew I was gay from the very earliest moment of my consciousness. I, mean, really? I remember being two or three at the house that I grew up in. And uh, this is so cliche, but like a UPS delivery man coming to the door and me looking at him through the screen door and just knowing that he held this sort of power over me that a, a woman would ever have. And it wasn't sexual, but it was. Right. And so I always really knew myself. I, I've always been someone who stubbornly, wholly knew how I felt, where I was, what my experience was. The problem was I felt like I had to hide. And so I think 
the amplitude of that awareness made me really, really fearful. And the risk of rejection was always really, really kind of in the forefront of my behavior and how hypervigilant I was to my environment. And so I grew up really feeling very unacceptable, but striving incredibly hard to succeed, to be a good boy, to do well in school, and ultimately to be an actor because it was a place where I felt acceptable, where I felt seen, and where I felt like those emotions that were so large in me could be channeled into something that people would applaud for, frankly. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's great. And you also, well, I applaud for you, but I'll get to, <laughs> to get to the, fa- the fact that I'm a, a fan geek later. <laughs> I also read that you were not only excelling in your arts, but you also were valedictorian of your high school. Yeah. And I mean, I, I certainly have pride for that. I was a good student, but really that was also tied in for me into this desperate need to, to be acceptable, to, to, to succeed in the eyes of my parents and other people. And so I was really driven by that need to achieve in school as well as in other places. Yeah. So when did you, if you identified as gay at such an early age, when were you able to express it and let people know, and, or I guess come out, I guess is... Um, it was sort of a stage-like process. Like I started secretly talking to boys online when I was a teenager. I had a couple sexual experimental experiences in late high school but didn't tell anyone and felt a lot of shame about that. Came to NYU and very quickly found a group of friends, mm. queer, straight, male, female, who made coming out you know, a much easier thing. Um, but I spent a whole year in New York pretending to like girls. And it was a different time then, really. Yeah. I mean, it was 15 years ago. and You had to. Thank God it's, it's a different time. Right. And, you know, I was in a musical theater school where they were trying to teach all the boys to be strapping young leading men. And that, that's what success in the theater would be. And, you know, that's complete bullshit now. But, yeah. And so I came out to my parents a year later. I was about 19. It was uh, touch and go because they just didn't have any language or really context to what it meant to be gay. And so I think they were really fearful that I would have a, a difficult life. You know, coming out is a much more complicated process even after that because you have to deal, deal with a lot of shame and a lot of habits and tendency to hide and to be secretive and to be ashamed of your body and of sexual experiences with other people. And so it's been a really long journey for me. Yeah. Yeah. So you went to NYU mm-hmm. and shortly after that, you you were still in school your senior year when you landed your first Broadway gig. Is that... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was a really fucking lucky kid. I really No, was. you're also very talented. Well, thanks. But, but you can say lucky, I'll say talented. Lucky and talented, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I was really fortunate to meet Lonnie Price, who is one of my best friends. He, he and I have this really beautiful, almost familial friendship. And it started then. I, I got an audition for a Master Hailed and the Boys. It was this really meaty lead role of this Ethel Fugard play. And this character just had such rage and insecurity and fear and bravado in him and these were all things that I just really understood and so I was just really able to to kind of nail who he was and so yeah my first job was to understudy that part on Broadway I didn't feel like I had any right to be there frankly it was I was terrified of the whole process and I never went on but it was a really big moment it introduced me to the idea that maybe I could be a Broadway actor Um, and I worked with Lonnie you know six times after that so he was a huge huge reason that I had the career that I had Well, the career that you have is one of the careers that I think uh, anyone dreams of uh, in the sense of you're a unicorn where you go back and forth from straight shows to musicals. Seamlessly, you're respected and praised in both. You even did good work on a soap opera. I think so many actors get pigeonholed into one or the other or ensemble, chorus, uh, principal, musicals. Besides being really talented, how did you maneuver being able to do that? Because that's very few people can. Well, I think what's amazing about performers is that we all live from a different core Mm -hmm. and we all perform for different reasons. And I just happened to live from a core of kind of raw emotion. 
and that really works well in musicals if you can sing that can work really well in, in plays. I was also, frankly, I think, lucky to have a good voice, but not a fantastic voice. Because I see un- incredible singers really pigeonholed as musicians, mm. when often they have incredible facility in their emotional lives and in their physical lives as well. But yeah, my need as an actor was to expose the kind of complexities that I was privately dealing with. That was like the function of acting for me. Mm. And I-, I think, therefore, it was really authentic, frankly. Are you able to tap into such a raw emotion? Is it something that you've always had? or is something- Yeah, I just had a really, always a really deep well of feeling and the expressiveness of my feeling was always just like, just kind of how I, I worked. I walked into 110 in the shade because I'm kind of obsessed with Audrey McDonald. Well, who isn't? Yeah. She's just funny as she is deep, you know? And so, but I walked out of 110 a Bobby Steggert fan because you were so riveting and captivating and I didn't know the show. And when I look back on that experience, what I found interesting is that I completely believed that John Cullen was your father, Audrey McDonald was your sister, and there was no question that you guys were siblings. Now what's happening in theater is that they're trying to do open casting and who's the best for it, and it's great, and I'm so for it, but it seems very obvious. For some reason, I completely believed it in 110. Why was, how was that different that, you know, colorblind casting, that's not the right term now anymore, worked for that show, and it's not necessarily working now when people are trying to force it to. Because I think they were really smart in simply interpreting that show through relationship. Mm. And what's beautiful about theater is that when it works, it's really because it's based in the dynamics of relationship. Other modes of storytelling, like film and TV, they're much more visual mediums, and so oftentimes the portrait of something takes more precedence than the dynamics. Mm. You know, Audrey just happens to be a really brilliant actress, and we were always just encouraged to focus on the dynamic of sibling, the dynamic of mother and and son and father, and as a result, I I think audiences, whether they know it or not, what they respond to is authenticity, you know, something that, that cuts to the truthful core of the human experience, and so... That's why theater works ever. Right. And that's why it worked then. It was amazing. I remember the, the funny duet you did, or the trio. It was a duet. It was called Little Red Hat. Yes. And also, you know, they usually cast a dancer in that role. And I'm not a dancer, but um, hopefully, I mean, they were smart to cast me in the sense that they cast someone who, again, lived from the place of the character and who figured the dancing out. Right. I mean, I would have never known that you don't consider yourself a dancer from from the memory of, of that. <laughs> One of the next big things that happened in your life was Ragtime. Yeah. And Ragtime, I can honestly say, is my favorite musical. Mine too. It's yeah. brilliant. Uh, after I saw a regional theater production of it and emailed Stephen Flaherty. And Did you ever play Houdini? No, I would love to play Houdini. Now I feel like I'm a little old. Mm. I absolutely love the show. And I went and saw the revival and again, loved it. One of the best roles in the most emotionally moving role, which is similar to the journey you're going through now, is Younger Brother. Mm-hmm. So how is... How was that experience? Because you get to play a dream role in a dream show that comes to New York and then isn't very critically received well. Yeah. I mean, huge lesson in managing expectations. Right. Huge. But I have to say that I'm, I, I was really proud of that production. I still remain very proud of that production. It was a, a, a true dream come true in the sense that um, I kind of found myself often in a very surreal space around it. Like, I just couldn't quite believe that... I was in a Broadway musical that had been interpreted by my heroes, you know, Andra and um, Marion Maisie and all these people. And it was the album that I would listen to most regularly in my car like Mm. in in high school when it came out. So it was really deeply meaningful to me. And what I was really proud of with that production actually was how it was reinterpreted as a real ensemble piece. It was Mm. not a star vehicle. 
and that was sort of delivered to the audience in the very first moment. The curtain came up and the entire company was standing in this beautiful tableau on the you know, scaffold set. All 45 of us you know, started in silence sort of creating the sacred space around Cole House's piano. And I think that communicated something different about the story mm. and different about what people should expect of that production. That said, you know, I, I, I was lucky enough to, to get a lot of good feedback for the role. And I also believe that's just simply because we were given true freedom to really dig in and to create our own interpretations. And so, you know, I wasn't being asked to repeat anything. I wasn't being asked to interpret something as it had been before. Mm. And I felt real freedom in that. Well, that's great. Yeah. So throughout your career, you've received lots of awards and accolades. But for Ragtime, you received your first Tony Award nomination. Yeah. And you said that you felt lonely when you got that nomination. Yeah, that sounds like a sour thing to say. No, it's not. No, lonely isn't always sour. (laughs) What I mean is that, like, you know, the one dream I didn't get to fulfill, I even thought this last night when I was watching the Tonys, is getting to celebrate the work you built with people, with those people. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of going to the Tonys together and and performing a number and then going to the party all together and celebrating what you built. That never happened in my experience. And it was strange to represent a show that had already closed. Mm. Did you get the nomination after the show had closed? Far after. Far after. Yeah. Which was a, a huge honor, too, because I had been told, you know what, once the show closes, people forget about it. It's about mm. selling tickets. The Tonys are just an, an advertisement, blah, blah, blah. And so it was, it was actually pretty much a big surprise that I was still considered for those awards. Yeah. Not to the people who saw you. It wasn't <laughs> a big surprise. I love that you're so humble. A question I forgot to ask. Were you ever in the ensemble in your whole career, in your whole life? You know what? I, I was at NYU, and um, my, my, frankly, my voice was still changing. Like, you know, I was a really late bloomer. And so I wasn't really ready to kind of be out there in front. And so, I, you know, I, I played like a businessman to the right in How to Succeed at NYU. And you know what? I had just as much fun doing that. I mean, it wasn't, you know, the same hard work that it is to play the lead. But <laughs> yeah, but at NYU, I wasn't like, you know, I wasn't the big, you know, he's going to be a big star kind of kid in the class. Mm, just just checking. <laughs> this is a question that, I mean, I even felt this last night and I'm still in the business. Did you feel less than or did you miss the Tonys? Did you miss show business when you watched the Tonys last, last night? Last night? Yeah. It almost felt like I was watching a, a, a past life. Um, And it's not that stark. I was really genuinely happy for so many friends who were there and, you know, Celia and Heidi Schreck and people I've worked with and Gideon and Santino. These are people, these were my peers. Um, And so actually the the further away I get from performing, the more I can genuinely start to enjoy theater, to not compare myself, to not imagine what my position in the hierarchy might be if I were there. And so, yeah, it it was a pleasing experience to kind of just so simply enjoy it last night. So Big Fish was a huge disappointment in, in many people's eyes, mm-hmm. but it was also completely anticipated. I remember I, when I got to interview Showman, she just talked about, I mean, she also felt that point, felt like the business was against her mm-hmm. as it was. So here you have something when you have uh, Strowman, you have Steggert, you have Leo Butts, you have these amazing people, this amazing concept, and it just sadly fizzled. I mean, it just seems like with all the success that you've had, there's been a lot of disappointment that was attached to it. Yeah. And this is like people are looking at your baby saying, we hate it. <laughs> right. So, I mean, how was that experience? It was really, really painful. You know, even in the out-of-town trials, they kind of hadn't figured out how to write my part. Mm. And so a lot of the response was that, you know, 
that you know the question for me as I was hearing that feedback was you know, am I going to get fired? Do, do they locate the problem in my in my performance? Mm. And that felt really really scary. You know, the summer between the Chicago production and the Broadway production, I was sure that I was going to get a call and they were going to say they they replaced me. Thank God they really saw the problem in the writing and they wrote some great material that kind of made my part a lot more accessible, understandable, and sympathetic, frankly. But ultimately, the, the alchemy just wasn't there. If I'm being honest, I, I'd say I could feel that the whole time. You know, there's the, there's that kind of magic that, that something that works has, and the magic just never quite sparked. And I, I really think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the show was supposed to be about one man's imagination, and they interpreted the physical production um, not around that character's vision, but around a lot of pyrotechnics and fancy set pieces and dazzling costumes. And since then, I do know that they've reinterpreted the show as a smaller chamber piece uh, with no sets, with very kind of uh, sparse costume pieces. So it really does come from the lead character. Yeah. And I think that's probably a way they should have gone. Right. Also, it's a show about this family, and really much of the production was really about fantasy. And so they never really found a balance between the family story and these really fun fantasy numbers. And I think, therefore, lacked the authenticity, I'll use that word again, that that audiences need in order to really love something. Well, I do think that so much pressure is put on producers and writers now to make something glittery and huge and... Especially if you're buying $250 tickets. I just bought a friend a $250 ticket to see Hadestown in September. And I was like, really? So I guess audiences feel like there better be showgirls and costumes and fire if I'm spending this amount of money. Yeah, but that's not actually what's important. Right. And the really smart producers know that. And I haven't seen Hadestown, but I would imagine it has actually a simplicity Mm. Oh. To, to its physical production that actually allows for the interpretation to really come alive and to be the core of the of the, of the experience. Yeah, I walk away from some of the, the simplest pieces of theater and I'm so much more moved than some of the other things. But some of the other big things, I'm like, oh, I just saw a Broadway show. Did yeah. I really like it? No, but I saw the money up there. You know, it's so interesting. It is. Not to say that those things can't really add to a show, but you need the emotional core mm-hmm to be true, you need it. That's, what, that's why we have storytelling, so that we can feel connected to something that reminds us of our humanity, and that's, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love it. So I read an article about you, about developing a character, mm-hmm. and this is a quote. Uh, I've made a career out of investigating people very much like myself, outsiders who have struggled with finding a place in the world. I've always been attracted to characters who are in search of some kind of truth, because truth is something that anyone born outside of the norm must define for himself Mm -hmm. which is interesting because you just talked about that so when you have jimmy younger brother and will these are three distinct different people Mm -hmm. so what was the key element to each one of these men that you discovered during your investigation of these characters you know it's interesting now that i've studied psychology you know grad school you know there's this whole school of thought about personality organization it's that our personalities and our drive is really based in our need for relationship Mm. Um, before that, Freud thought that our sexual and aggressive needs were what kind of drove us. And later on, you know, uh, other theorists said, no, 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 it's what a real what our real human drive is, is to find connection in relation to other people. And I think I've always sort of because I felt so disconnected as a young person, felt so isolated, so scared of who I was, that um, connection always felt like the real thing I lacked and the real thing I needed. And so I've always approached characters from a place of that need. So Jimmy, I think he wanted his heart to be, you know, celebrated as much as he wished to celebrate another person's heart. I think that younger brother wanted desperately to belong to 
a group of people who had something to believe in and who had something to fight for together as one. And I think Will desperately wanted to connect with his dying father. And so that need for connection has always been at the core of, of sort of how I, I see people, how I see myself, and how I see those characters. That was three brilliant answers. So where have you gone with this need for to connect for yourself? Well, I mean, I was letting acting kind of do that for me. Mm. And it created great community and great experiences, and I'm, I'm so grateful. Um, but I always had this voice in the back of my head that really knows myself that was saying, you know, you're letting this, this career, these wonderful artistic experiences to kind of stand in for the space that you really need to ultimately create for yourself. It kind of felt dangerous to me. In order to find real connection for myself, to find real self-acceptance and to actually then create space for other people, I couldn't keep relying so wholly on the acting. Mm. Sadly fascinating because it's (laughs) authentic. (laughs) So in this article, you, by accident, were considered that you came out publicly. Which is funny because you said that you were never... Yeah, it's kind of nonsense. Yeah, you were never in the closet. But a lot of people were talking about your sexuality on the the Mm intertweets. And they said, the realization I've suddenly come out, as obvious as it seems, is that being gay is the core to my success in the first place. How how do you feel like being gay is the core to your success? It's complicated, but I I think that when you're an outsider, you have to think outside the box. And so it makes you more creative. Mm. Also... I think that I had a lot of pain, and I think that that's pain I could always count on, for better or worse, to bring that to a story. I actually agree with that, but I think I struggled a lot longer with accepting that I was gay. Even when I was finally there, I, was, I don't think I was ever really, really comfortable with it. But now I feel like now that I am much more authentic with myself, that it is becoming the core of my success and the core of my values. But I, for a long time, dealt with shame, and you talk about shame a lot for being gay and for other things. How have you as a person dealt with your personal shame? I mean, it is a long, long, long road and I don't think it ever really fully goes away. I think that's might be a a naive thing to think, at least from my perspective. Being in shows where I got to play openly gay people was a really valuable experience because I got to sort of try on their bravery. You know, I did a play by Terrence McNally called Mothers and Sons in which I played this very well-adjusted gay person with a child and, and who was married. And that stuff felt so far away from me, you know, personally at that time in my life. It was only five years ago. So I got to try on kind of different suits, if you will. And then, like I said, it was realizing that I had to stop putting on those suits and I had to actually risk doing it for myself. And so, you know, stepping away, really redefining who I am outside of the identity of actor has given me more space to actually accept who I am, therefore accept other people into my life. I know for me, I turned some of my shame to uh, substances, mostly alcohol. And because of not realizing I had this type of shame, I know you're probably in your new, your new practice that you're going to come across that mm-hmm. uh, a lot. Did you do any, were you destructive with some of your shame or did you put it out on the stage? Both. I don't have so much of an addictive mechanism in my my biology where it ever became dangerous, but I certainly self-medicated with, mm. with alcohol. You know, I experienced a lot of anxiety often, I think based ultimately in shame. So I, you know, I would often use alcohol as a way to manage that anxiety. It never got me in, in huge trouble, but it certainly made me more kind of emotionally unstable than I, I, I wish I had been. Yeah. After Mothers and Sunday, there was another gay character you played in a show called Yank. It was before. That was before. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So how was playing that gay character in in Yank, and what was the Yank experience? That was extraordinary, and, and probably my favorite experience because it was this kind of strange, small new musical that wasn't supposed to succeed. You know, it was 
very queer before queer was as cool as it is now, based on a 40s movie, movie musical. So, you know, kind of a strange combo of storytelling tones. And it was about this like really incredibly brave young man who, you know, finds love while serving overseas in World War II. And it had heart and it was earnest and there were really fun sort of old-fashioned musical theater, musical comedy moments and true romance and real pain and just it had this whole like diversity that I found really appealing. I learned a lot about how to lead a show. I learned a lot about how to bring true emotional vulnerability to a musical theater role, which, you know, is often a tricky thing when you have to also sing and dance. I just felt so grateful that once we did make it off Broadway that people recognized the simple beauty of it and that it, it got the, the cred that I think it deserved. Mm. So Yank was one of the best things I've ever seen in New York City. I saw it twice. Do you agree with how I describe it? I do 100%. Especially I think for being a young gay boy that grew up on movie musicals that still that still love them. I mean, you fantasize about dancing with another man all the time. Right. You know what I mean? And just being, I mean, Fred and Fred. So to actually get to sit up there and, and watch it and see the experience and have these front rows and, I mean, crocodile tears that you had. I was riveted. I saw it twice. So, I mean, this is why I said I was, I was nervous earlier is because <laughs> I'm a huge Bobby Steger fan. Uh-huh. I mean, I actually, the, the only time I've really met you until now is I fanboyed on you and, like, had to talk to you on the subway station. <laughs> I remember, yeah. I can't believe you remember that because it's, it's why I was wearing I don't dirt. remember what you said, but I remember meeting you. All right. Yeah. Well, I had a Derby on, and I was like, oh, my God. No, I was probably really cool about it. No, not at all. Not at all. But I don't even do that that often. I don't, like, walk up to people to tell them how amazing they were in a show, especially if I don't know them. But there was something about Yank that really inspired me, and I don't even know why I went. I just ended up there. Still obsessed with it. So any time I feel like someone was involved with Yank, I automatically have respect for them. Yeah. And you know what? Now it's being done in these sort of small theaters all over the world. There was just oh. a production in Brazil. There was a production in Indiana. There was a production in London. It's being now translated into other languages. Really? That speaks to something universal. Yes. You know, not all small off-Broadway musicals do that. And so whenever I talk to David Zonuk, who's one of my best friends, I remind him as to how special that is. Yeah. He wrote something that any culture can sort of appreciate. Yeah. And at one time that had a Broadway trajectory and then it just hit a wall or something. Yeah. I just don't think they could raise the money you know, I think they were hopeful, but maybe a, a little too naive about, you know, the whole kind of system that needs to embrace a show in order for it to make it to Broadway. And it just never quite got there. Oh. Yeah. So a couple of years ago, there were some rumblings in the theater world that you were thinking of getting out of the business. And then some stuff showed up online. And I just remember at the time, I was shocked and devastated, completely selfishly, because I had decided that I was going to see everything you ever did for the rest of your life. <laughs> and then it came out later that it was official that you were stepping back from that career to pursue greener pastures at the time, and different pastures and better pastures for who you were. And I think we don't realize that we're capable of doing more than this. I think we put huge blinders on ourselves that we can only do one thing. Mm-hmm. And now you're doing something else and excelling. How did it go from I'm um, Bobby Steger, Tony nominee, like actor that everyone loves, to I need to go make a difference outside the front of the footlights? I think it was just the process of becoming more and more honest with myself about what that was doing to me. And it was just, it was taking up too much 
space that I could have been using more healthily. You know, the thing about being an actor, no matter where you are in a trajectory, is that you're so often being put in this insecure, imbalanced position of having to find work, of having to prove yourself, of being unemployed, of losing your financial stability, of dealing with a lot of insecurity in comparison to other people who might be, you know, in positions that you wish you were in. It's a really, really demanding headspace to be put in as a performer. And I have incredible respect for my old self and everyone who, who continues to, to do it. But I was simply in need of the validation that acting gave me just too much. It, it meant too much to me. It, it was the thing that made me feel like I was of worth as a person. It was the thing that made me feel like I was valuable. And because I've always kind of really known my core pretty well, you know, I, I knew that it, it just wasn't sustainable. It was just too imbalanced. And I felt like I really needed to grow up, frankly. Mm. And it was a big move and it was an extreme move, but that was my move at, at, at becoming a happier adult. Well, I mean, I guess it was a great move. So after the rumors became a fact, you posted something, an open letter to the artist, mm -hmm. which I'm, I'm gonna have you cold read <laughs> by an author named uh, Bobby Steggert. <laughs> I mean, this went viral within our community because it was so well written. You said things that a lot of us think. That was um, my goal, just to be entirely transparent about, you know, how I really felt. Oh, yeah. And people sent it to me and I think I, I waited a while because I was actually, I was in denial that it was happening. <laughs> no, uh, but so funny, uh, it says five minute read now in 2019. Oh, they have to tell you how long it's going to take you. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah so because you're like, oh no, if that's six I minutes. I have 2.5 minutes. Yeah, I'm not yeah. going to read that. So here is, I'm going to put you on the spot and have you read this, an open letter to the artist. Okay. So I wrote this in July 2018, about a year ago. About two years ago, I completely turned my back on an acting career that I had spent 20 years building. I found myself increasingly discontented by the lack of control that every artist must submit to, and I found myself nauseatingly self-concerned in a job that threw me off balance enough to never quite feel stable. That, and as the world spiraled into the surreal chaos that continues to swirl around us today, I found it harder and harder to justify my contribution as enough to make a significant difference. The classic argument for the necessity of art, and a deeply legitimate one, is that it holds a mirror up to the human condition. It asks the important questions and gives voice to the voiceless. I suppose my goal in leaving the theater was to make a difference that felt more practical or somehow quantifiable. Instead of giving metaphoric voice to the voiceless, why not up the ante and work to give them a voice directly? And so I've spent the last two years pursuing a master's degree in social work. I've been given a crash course in anti-black racism, in the horror of our immigration and criminal justice systems, in the forces behind gender and sexual discrimination. I've met some incredible social justice warriors, people putting all of their heroic energies into fighting to inspire essential shifts in the cultural fabric. And may I unequivocally stress, I still believe that artists of all kinds, playwrights, painters, musicians, and actors, wield equally powerful heroism in the same aim. In fact, the irony of walking away from the arts is that I am now more convinced than ever as to the necessity of you, the artist. But here's my ultimate argument, and hear me out. You are more powerful than the work you do under the proverbial lights. In fact, it's only a part of why we need you. Let's face it, it's too late and the world is too far gone to celebrate art for art's sake. It's simply not enough anymore. We as a collective culture have forgotten what true greatness is as the paradigm shifts and we're bombarded with the most toxic and pathetic expressions of selfishness masquerading as strength. 
But here's the good news. All humans are outfitted with potential greatness, and yours far outstrips your craft. It is a superpower in this ever-isolated and polarized world, and it is your responsibility to use it. Many of you already do. The greatness I speak of is your bravery in offering authentic compassion in the flesh, a space of physical, emotional, and ideological vulnerability that, though out of fashion in our current climate, is the only thing that can save us. Lots of people practice empathy, and every human is endowed with it, but fewer have the experience you have in using it so flexibly. At the risk of getting too personal, this is another reason I felt I had to leave acting. It was easy for me to bear my soul under the safety of the blinding lights and a two-hour time limit. What was far more challenging for me was to translate that freedom of expression into daily life. The most distilled version of my disappointment was that, in my deepest knowledge, I wasn't walking the walk. I was proclaiming an artist's social responsibility whilst hiding everywhere but on stage. I was vulnerable and brave at work, and I was stuck and afraid elsewhere. Ultimately, I did what felt necessary to create a chance at more sustainable balance in my own life, and I don't have any regrets today as I work towards something happier. And in no way do I argue that anyone in an artistic life should change course. Instead, I'm simply urging you to look at what you have in the moments you feel frustrated and powerless. The enormous opportunity in every moment of your waking life, regardless of the audition you just aced, the job you just booked, or the brilliant performance you just gave, and equally important, the higher purpose you have despite the audition you just bombed, the job you just lost, or the brilliant performance you wish you had the opportunity to offer the world. You, like all of us, are bigger than your job, but it just so happens that your job has prepared you for the war ahead. You're trained through your exceptional sensitivity to be generous of heart. You're more comfortable with the vulnerability of emotional expression than almost anyone else on earth. You can look deeply into the eyes of another human without flinching from the terror of being exposed. You understand that silence and stillness are not passive, but radical acts in the digital world of never-ending status updates. You realize even beneath the tidal wave of self-expression that powers our culture of narcissism that to listen is the only way to truly honor another's humanity. These qualities are not unique to actors, but they are ones that you have spent a lifetime cultivating. You're also in an industry that threatens the very qualities that brought you here. It surely did mine. Whether your work reaches dozens or millions, it can only represent life. It cannot stand in for it. I have to believe from experience that a tortured artist is someone who is unable to integrate their work and their life, so that the only place they feel understood is in the privacy of their work. But I've come to realize that the work is just as much to understand as it is to be understood. And as the world becomes increasingly disembodied and dehumanized by fear and greed, it is your flesh and blood, your eyes and breath and heart that can bring change to every space you enter. You must remind others whose gods are money or fear or status or fame that their worship is futile. Do not compromise in using the gifts that make you special. Do not allow an industry that asks you to be selfish to take away your generosity. Create no boundary between the stage and the streets. Look up from your screens and feel the power you already contain. There are people fighting the good fight at every turn, but it just so happens that your special skills are applicable everywhere you go. When it comes to professional contribution alone, a surgeon is limited to saving lives in the operating room. You are not. Strange that I had to completely reroute the entire trajectory of my life to learn that I already had everything I needed to make a difference. My master's degree will be a piece of paper, but my life as an artist will make me a great social worker. This I know. And if I ever return to acting, it will be with the knowledge, and I hope it reminds you of your own possibilities, that the work does not stop when unemployed, that you are an artist every day if you so choose.
that art is an obligation and that it must be lived, not simply offered to those who have paid the price of admission. It's brilliant and beautiful. And I think the difference for me is that when I heard you were leaving the business a while ago, I didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. But when I read this letter, I completely understood every moment that you were feeling. I don't think it's a coincidence that my shift has been the past couple of years with the administration and feeling that I don't know where to contribute in my life anymore. A year ago when I finally did read it and accepted the fact that you were (laughs) you're not going to be on stage anymore. I was I was working with these LGBTQ Mormon kids who a lot of them were being kicked out of their homes and I was realizing that I was getting more satisfaction out of that than performing on stage and I was like what is happening I mean they were complimenting each other that being said I completely understand that Brad sitting here today understands what Bobby was thinking four years ago so how did that feel reading that now and how different than it was a year ago I guess reflecting on it now I realized that that letter could be to anyone. You know, I wrote it sort of as a call to my tribe, a tribe of people who are often put in positions where they don't get to contribute what they're so brilliant at because a job in the arts is contingent upon so many different factors as as compared to other professions. But this is a message that is applicable to, to anyone because what we desperately need right now is more work at, at dialogue, at understanding, at empathy, at compassion for the other. Artists do have more experience and sort of interpersonal skills, I would say, but what the letter argues is what we all need to do. Because I think a lot of us feel defeated and feel like we don't know how to contribute. We don't, we're told we can make a change election day, but we want to make a change every day and we don't really know how to do it. Focusing on like our kickball change and getting the next audition is, for me anyways, becoming empty. I don't see myself stopping, but I need to add something. Yeah. I need to add to my life. But the power one has that you have to be empathetic to the person next to you kickball changing mm. or the homeless person on the street is something that you have full control over no matter where you're working, what you're doing. And why did you choose social work? My favorite aunt is a, a social worker. Her name's Aunt Jenny. She's my dad's younger sister. And she's the happiest person I know. Always has been. And there's just something in her spirit that is so authentically accessible that you, you know it's true and you know it's real. She's always been my biggest fan as when I was an actor, and now she's my biggest fan as a social worker. And I think she has a lot of pride in the fact that I, I chose to follow in her footsteps. But she always said, and I kind of didn't get it, that, that service towards others is the only way to attain true happiness. Mm. That's sort of a philosophy that other you know, important thinkers have sort of touched on. But she subscribes to that, and I didn't quite understand it because I think I was rightfully so thinking that I was being of service to others as an artist, and I, and I, I was. It's just that I wasn't being of service to myself. And so social work has allowed me to marry being of service to myself so that I can then be of service to other people. That's great. Even in AA, they say service keeps you sober, yeah. creates self-esteem, you do esteemable acts. You never realize that being selfless is actually going to be beneficial. Yeah, it's actually an act of true generosity to love yourself yeah. because you can love others. And, you know, frankly, we're, we're just we're being taught in every pop culture moment and political moment in this era that what is success is fame, is wealth, is appearance, is success, is hierarchy. And these are false gods. They, they are the gods that will, if we continue to worship them, that will be our destruction. I've got another couple of quotes that I love that you said. One thing that you said that really struck with me is the saying that you were tending your career and not tending your soul. Right. Felt like it was such a gardening example that I, I, see, I see that if you tend one thing more than another, something's going to die. Yeah, I was just completely imbalanced. And like I said, I was too dependent 
upon the sense of self I felt through Bobby the Actor that I just wasn't being kind to myself and I wasn't being kind to others in the way that I knew I needed to be if I wanted to be a happy person. Yeah, because you also said you felt selfish and wanted to think about others instead. Yeah, I mean, it's also a relief to think about others instead to a degree because when you're an actor, you're put in a position of having to constantly fight. I'm so sick of thinking about my next step and what this meant about me and what that meant about me and what this person said about me and whether I got this job. And it kept me really kind of focused on watching myself. I felt so trapped by that. Well, now you're at a great time where you can actually start thinking about other people. Mm-hmm. So you graduated or you, where are you with the finishing I graduated process? two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Yeah. That's what I thought. And that's when I snagged you. And I was like, ha ha. Because <laughs> now you're ready to start a practice and get, is it patients, clients? What? I like clients. It's, Cli- like, it's a little more equitable than patients. We've talk, been talking about your past. So tell mm-hmm. me, let's start two weeks ago and today. Like, where are you? This is... Pretty awesome. Happy graduation. Thank you. Yeah. Did you put a cap and gown on and walk down? I didn't wear a cap and gown. It was optional. I should have because I really wish I had kind of marked the moment more. But my parents were there and my Aunt Jenny was there. I have a license now, so I'm, I'm legal to practice. And I'll be working at a couple of nonprofits where I'll be seeing LGBT young adults. I feel really passionate about because a lot of these younger people don't have the insurance or the, mm. the funds to pay for therapy in the way that therapy costs in private practices. And I've built some really beautiful relationships with some of my clients and I'm seeing them start to own who they are and realize that they, they have a voice and that they have power in them. And that's so inspiring to me to watch them realize that in themselves. Yeah. And then I'll also be working uh, with a professor of mine. He'll be my sort of professional supervisor to build a private caseload. And, and hopefully I'd like to treat creative artists who deal with a lot of the same issues that that I've dealt with. So I think hopefully there'll be an understanding between us that will allow for deeper exploration of these very specific things that artists confront. Well, I think that that would be um, awesome. Especially when I reached out to you, I was like, oh, I'd love to either go to therapy with you or interview you. And you're like, you can only do one or the other. (laughs) Can't do both. (laughs) Which then makes sense because there is such a patient-client privilege. And that being said, you uh, are well-known within the theater community. So when someone walks in to have an appointment with you, a stranger, not me, they're still, they might, if they're educated and they know, they're still gonna know who you are. Right. How is that gonna work? Just, I'm just curious. That's tricky and I, I don't know yet. Mm. I'm imagining there might be a scenario in which that might be a real detriment. Mm. And then we would process that. And there might be a scenario in which that's a real benefit. Right. Um, because people might, in instances, be able to trust that I might have a window into understanding them more than perhaps another therapist who has not had my experience. All that said, you know, my style is that I really bring myself into the room. I'm, I'm not sort of a, a blank slate type of therapist. And so I don't share personal anecdotes about my life. I right. certainly share my energy, my heart, my thoughts, my impressions, and the relationship is actually what's most important in, in therapy. It's, it's, it's about exploring that space of intimacy between two people and and becoming more knowledgeable of and tolerant of the many complexities that come up in intimate relationships. Because most people are coming to therapy because they, of course, we're human. We have difficulty or challenges when it comes to relating to other people. And so hopefully if I bring myself into the room, I do bring in my experience. And hopefully more than not, it will be beneficial. Well, I think it's more than they'll trust that there's a window, they'll know that there's a window that mm-hmm. you, you get it. And I also think that as much as I know about you, and I, I don't know anything about your personal life, so I, I know you have a dog. So I, I think that people are gonna know what the world knows that you can find out. 
but they're not going to walk in there knowing anything about your personal life except for maybe your Aunt Jenny, you know? So, (laughs) and that's really, I think, what is detrimental when you know it's a win-win. Everyone should just come to you. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah. Uh, No, and I, I, it's so funny. I love my therapist, but sometimes when I'm talking about auditions and stuff like that, I could tell that I'm like checking out. So we get to like, what is, what is the rejection feel like? And we talk about those type of things further than the actual like, they didn't even look up from their phone or whatever because he was like, I don't, Right. What do you mean behind the table? You know, sure. So I um, can certainly I know what that feels like when they don't look up from the <laughs> fucking phone. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. So what did what did you discover since you love investigating characters when you investigated the character of Bobby the social worker? What did you discover that was new? Well, from a big macro point of view, like you know, one of the themes in my life is that I I've always felt on the outside of something. I've always felt sort of like an outsider. And sort of even maintain that sense of isolation in order to protect myself and maybe even feel special in some kind of backwards way. And it was fascinating to go into all of these spaces where I as the white male was often perceived as the dominant person, the culturally dominant figure. You know, I practiced in my first internship with LGBT immigrants. Mm. And these are often trans individuals from Central America or Africa, people of color, people who have been through the detention system and who have been held captive by our government and who are coming into queer nonprofit space. And here I am, a white privileged male who has so much more privilege than I ever really understood. Yes. And so, yeah, social work school was a big lesson in intersectionality. It's helped me to feel less like an outsider. And it's helped me to realize that my responsibility as a person of privilege is to work to give people with less privilege more space. That's, I really resonated when you talked about the LGBT immigrants and because of trying to really reach out to LGBT communities that, because I think that it's something I get, especially when they're younger and I can't imagine being uh, like 15 years old and homeless and out because I, I don't think I even really came out till I was in my early 20s and I still am not comfortable with myself. So to see these kids, they're so much more well-adjusted and comfortable even though they're being told by our president that you're not allowed in homeless shelters, you're not allowed to have medical insurance, and they're still trying to thrive and survive when here I am. I don't know, I just have a lot of admiration right now for you. Now you're walking the walk. Earlier you said you weren't, but you realize you are now, right? Yeah, it's always something to navigate. You know, sometimes I feel like I'm walking less of a walk than other days. But yeah, I think I've set up a structure through which to walk the walk. And through the structure, I will keep showing up and doing my best. Have you had to deal with depression? With when it comes to both careers? I'm not as much of a depressive person as I am an anxious person. Mm. And you know, depression and anxiety are often, they coexist, and oftentimes they can be seen as the flip side of the same coin. Um, but for me, it was always this kind of, this deep fear of unacceptability and this sort of rising above the difficulty. And so I think anxiety actually functioned for me to sort of remove me from the depth of, of how painful a lot of my experience with shame and sexuality and all that stuff felt. It was intolerable at times, but in in a way, the anxiety felt more tolerable than the pain. And so in order to get over the anxiety, I had to go through the pain. And to go through the pain, I think I had to really step away. And thank God I did. I gave myself the space to start really accepting who I am. And how has your life changed when it comes to family dynamic and friend dynamic and social circle dynamics? Because it's, I mean, a complete shift. And I mean, it's like when a show closes, it's hard to keep in touch with those people. But yet you close doors, not just shows Uh, not in a bad way no no it was just a natural progression i mean some of my best friends 
are successful actors, but they're the ones who are the true blues. You know, I think what I realized was that the dynamics that were true and authentic and based in a real desire to know the other person and to support the other mm. person, then what we do doesn't matter. You know, what I have sort of stepped away from is a lot of the industry-driven, appearance-driven, party-driven environments. Mm. Because I just don't really feel like being any other version of myself than the one who's sitting right here. And I think going to those environments can um, put you into sort of a, I don't know, a higher intensity, um, more self-conscious place. And I just don't quite feel like, I don't, I don't quite feel like being self-conscious anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So would you say you're happy? Yeah. That's great. <laughs> no, isn't that yeah. what... I equate happiness with a sense of peace. And I just feel more and more comfortable in my own skin, in my own sexuality, in my relationships with other people. Therefore, I'm just more available. I don't need other people to tell me how great I am anymore. I'm sort of starting to do that for myself. Yeah, that's, that's happiness. What happened in this process that was different than you expected? The process of, of completely changing my life? Yes. I thought I would miss it. Mm. And I, I don't. I miss building something with a team of people. My work now is very private with other, you know, with other right. individuals. There's something really special about, about building a show with a cast and, and a, a whole team. But I, I'm surprised as to how easy it has been for me to walk away. But I'll take it. Yeah. Okay, so you have to completely go with me on this next section. Okay. But I want you back in the spotlight. I've decided that you're getting a radio show <laughs> on Sirius Radio on the Broadway channel. So uh, it might be like in two years. Right. So Two or three, right? Two or three years. Okay. You'll be right on after Seth Rudesky. So he'll introduce you. And what it will be is uh, like Frasier. You watch Frasier? I did, sure. Yeah, and it's a, he's a therapist, a social worker. And people call in and ask him questions. Okay. So that's what's going to be, and the name is going to be the social bee. Well, that I'm working on the name, <laughs> but like, because you're a social worker, and B is for Bobby and Brad. So oh, that's good. Right. But I'm going to be just I'll be Roz, you know. Okay. Like, okay. The okay. sassy uh, person that does stuff and reads it. Okay. So this is your intro music. <laughs> Fly to the bumblebee, social bee. <laughs> All right, we are here with social bee with Bobby Steggert. How are you doing this morning, Bobby? I'm just fine. How are you doing, Roz? Good. So <laughs> how was your morning? It's good. I'm excited to, um, to hear what our first caller has to say. Well, our, we have our first email that we have, his name is Vincent from New York City. He's a white, cis-born gay man in his 40s. And he writes, Dear Social Bee, So due to a family tragedy many years ago, I stunted my growth spiritually and mentally and stopped growing as a person. I completely focused on my theater career. Once I finally got success, I had the time and finances to focus on my mental health. So now over 22 years later after the family tragedy, I've moved past it and have taken a good start with my mental health. This is when I realized I'm getting more satisfaction from my outreach work than I do from my theater jobs that I've always dreamed of. Also in the past two years, that's not a coincidence, I've grown past many people in my life, primarily my family. Many of them haven't worked on themselves and haven't moved on, so they're now stuck after a 25-year-old tragedy, and they have no forward momentum. Now that I'm more connected with myself, I'm less connected with others. The two things I thought I knew best in my life, theater and family, are now the two things I don't know anymore. I mean, I guess I'd first say that there is something to mourn here. 
it's not just something to to move beyond and try to find a silver lining with. It's you know when you lose connection to the people who elementally essentially were the people most important to you, you are losing a great source of of belonging. And so many people stay stuck whether they know it or not in order to stay connected to people even if it's not good for them. And so you took a huge risk in deciding to change yourself at the possible loss of these people who you say are stuck where they have been for so many years. And in that risk, there's been payoff because there's been a new sense of authentic self, but there's also a loss. And the truth of the matter is I don't believe that you can bring people with you. Uh, you can't ask people to change. You can't tell people how to be different. The only way that you can inspire that is actually through fostering authenticity in yourself and inviting other people through that authenticity to find their own. But there's real limits to that. The limits are that you just can't control anything really except for your own thoughts and reactions. When it comes to not knowing family or not knowing what used to be so important to you in the theater, it might feel like one doesn't know because they've lost the connection, but it's the experience of that family life and of that career that works through you now and all the lessons good and bad that you learned those those experiences are what got you to your current state and though there is challenge and a feeling of isolation there's also so much possibility and a space of authenticity uh, through which to find other connection uh, through which to find other like-minded people and through which to have hope for connecting to places that resonate on the much healthier wavelength that you're resonating now. Great. I have another question from Susan. She's a young 23-year-old dancer that just moved to New York, and she asks this. Now that I'm here facing the big leagues, I'm realizing people are only judging me for my body, and it's bringing up issues of past sexual harassment, knowing that that is what I have to sell. Is this something that you've ever had to deal with? Hmm. Uh, sure. I mean... You know, part of the contract you sign with the devil when you become a performer is that you're often being judged by the casing that you're in. And you are being evaluated against other people who are um, oftentimes much more aesthetically, classically attractive um, in this industry than in other industries. You know, it's an industry that attracts healthy, good-looking people. That's the deal with the devil that you sign. The thing you have to do is work even harder to cultivate the sense of value you have in yourself that contradicts that, um, or that at least um, combines um, with the very superficial sense of value that someone can offer you that you can have for yourself when it comes to your, your physical appearance. If you can work really hard to focus on um, the way you treat people, uh, the way you communicate, the way that you bring honesty and integrity into the spaces that you um, enter, then your appearance and how other people evaluate your appearance will become less important to you. And that is a message that whether people are, know it or not, will hear and will hopefully respect. When you value other things in yourself more than your appearance and what you have to sell in that regard, other people will stand up and notice. And those who don't are certainly not worth your time. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for choosing Social B this week on Sirius. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was just spitballing. Hopefully no, there was something in there that made some sense. No, it definitely did. No, th I'm definitely <laughs> pitching this idea. Have you personally had to deal with sexual harassment? Yeah. You know, I won't go into 
details, but I, I had people in powerful positions when I was younger certainly manipulate me into situations that I certainly didn't feel comfortable with. The thing is, there's, there's a fine line with this, this discussion of sexual harassment because in one case that I can remember, I was a perfectly willing participant. Mm. It's just that they had so much power over me because of the structure of the, the work I was in that though I wanted to involve myself, I also felt that I had to. That's a complicated clusterfuck right though, there because part of you wants it and part of you doesn't and which part of you are you supposed to trust and believe and follow. In sort of a more per pervasive way, when you look young as I do, and uh, when you're smaller, like I am, um, I think people feel more accessibility to you. They can kind of, they can attach a narrative about you onto you that is um, young, innocent, accessible, accommodating. And I think I was also to a degree those things. And so I think that that made people feel an invitation towards being more familiar or more patronizing mm. than they might be with someone who's bigger, taller, older looking, just not as accessible. In almost all the articles I read about you, the writer always starts it off with a descriptive word that's like handsome, adorable, or cute as a button. And it's always like they are, they're already telling the audience, judging you on your appearance, mm -hmm. which I found interesting. But now you don't have to worry about that. Is that different to walk into an office where they're looking at you for your talent? They're not looking at you for your appearance. Yeah, I mean, the, the true answer is that I, I miss some of the sort of frothy, more superficial interactions that, um, that performers have. I mean, there's, it's fun to be in a sexualized space. It's also completely inappropriate. Right, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, to that degree, I miss it. And then to the degree that, you know, I'm being valued for my spirit and what I have to offer intellectually, emotionally, um, more than perhaps my physical appearance mm. is, is a relief. And I will tell you, ever since not acting, I look in the mirror so much less. Oh, wow. And it's, that's a relief. There, there's just like less headspace involved with me checking out if I look acceptable or sexy or hot or handsome. It's just not as important to me. And that feels like a more balanced place to be. What else has changed? Like, I mean, do you eat different? Do you work out different? Do you sleep different? I mean, all those things that we obsessed about as a performer. What has changed in that part of your life? You know, I'm, I'm not sure about daily routine more than I'm sure about relationship to solitude. Mm. I'm just much better and more happy with moments of silence and stillness and being alone and kind of being okay with that that empty space. It mm. doesn't feel empty to me anymore, frankly. So it feels full of my own very content, happy world. That's amazing, I love that. So what is your next step with your, your social work degree and you're working at a practice and so where, where, where do you see this trajectory? I just don't know, but it, it will always be important to me to offer services to marginalized people. I think that's an ethic of social work that is at the center of the profession. Mm. So I'll always be donating part of my time to nonprofits where people can have care that is accessible. And then, you know, I have to pay my bills and so I'll eventually, I think, own my own business and have a private practice. And if all goes well, I'll, I'll continue supporting my community, my, my, my creative arts community with the very things that we've been talking about, which is sort of all the, the specific vicissitudes of what it is to be a performer in a very singular industry where you're thrown off balance quite a bit. Oh, quite a bit. Yeah. Have you thought about contacting the Actors Fund? You know what? I wrote them an email and they never wrote me back. I really, I, I, um, I wrote them saying I would love to have an interview and they just never got back to me. That's because they didn't get the email. <laughs> Why else would they not? Who knows? And maybe they didn't have a position for you know exactly the thing that I would do. Right. Yeah, I've always thought about it. I've talked to Tom Viola yeah. about it and he thinks it's a great idea. So maybe down the line I'll be able to somehow become 
more involved somehow. Yeah, it's a great place. Definitely. Yeah, I know it's a great place, and I, I certainly access it as an actor, you know. Yeah, I ask a question about like a, a highlight of your life, but I want two. I want one from your act one, one from your act two, and then when you start your act three, I'll come back and interview you again. <laughs> uh, so what would be a moment, it can be a, something big or small, that you cherish from both your careers? I'll remember kind of how shaken in a really profound way I was the first time we got to perform the opening number of Ragtime on Broadway mm. in, in the revival. My first kind of profound Tony watching moment was when I was a teenager and I watched the opening number of the original production on, on the Tonys. And I just found that, that opening to be perfect mm -hmm. in, every, in every single way. Mm -hmm. And I will never forget sort of being on Broadway in our first preview with this like deeply enthusiastic audience, all sort of celebrating the power of this you know, brilliant opening number and feeling the power of all the voices around me in the 35 piece orchestra and knowing that dreams can really come true and really living in that space is pretty remarkable, yeah. The moment in your social work. You know, I have this, this one client and I can't share any personal <laughs> details, oh, no, no, of no, course, no. but they're a young trans man and he walked into therapy just completely terrified, terrified to communicate, terrified to maintain eye contact, really terrified of taking up any space at all. And not really even realizing that he had the right to take up any space. Mm. And after a, about a year of working together, he has just completely blossomed into this person who shares, who is creatively inspired, who's an artist, who is now looking into becoming a modern dancer, and who very recently started hormone replacement therapy and is now you know, getting shots of testosterone to sort of fulfill now the next step in, in transition. And I'm just so proud of him. I just, to see someone realize, begin to realize their value is the best feeling that I could ever feel. Well, that is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad I did this interview. I'm bummed that you can't be, I can't come to therapy. But so, I mean, if they hypothetically wanted to contact the place you're going to work at. Yeah, my like professional email is bobbysteggert.msw at gmail.com. Okay. Yeah. And what are all the initials behind your name? <laughs> Master of Social Work. Master of Social Work. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Well, did, is there anything that, that I missed that you wanted to t talk about? I just want to reiterate that I just have such a deep respect for the performers who ride the crazy ride and find balance within it. And it's something that I, I wish I could have done, and maybe I could do in the future. Mm. But I'm, I'm in awe of the people who do it and do it well. Like I said in my letter, in no way would I ever suggest that someone has a better life once leaving the business. It's just really about how you do it. In my own limitations are also like a great deal of respect for the people who, who make it work. Well, I'm finding that I'm shocked that I can do other things because I think for so long I thought I could only perform. I think some of it has to do with my first long-term boyfriend would joke that like, uh, if you don't get a job, the only thing you're, you're capable of doing is working at Blockbuster Video because uh, like we really feel, like I talked about earlier that you're just a dancer and that we don't have intelligence. And then I'm realizing now that I'm doing so many random things like from stage managing to hosting, from teaching that I was like, I can do so many other things and where did I learn them all? Theater. Of course. And so I think that that's also exciting because I think for me right now, I'm learning all these things because of necessity. I'm surviving, but I'm also, I am thriving because I'm still using my creative stuff. But it is shocking to know that like we are capable of so much more than just performing. And I think we live in a, in a world right now where how much of this transition had to do with the political climate? 
I think it was the the message that the timing was right as I was personally coming to terms with my own unhappiness. You know, every act in some way is selfish because we're the only people in full control of where we go. But it just felt like all the signs pointed to yes. Mm. And so it was an invitation into the space that I was already working on, you know, privately. Right. And was, was there a long buildup before you made the decision? How long was it? Percolating for years. And then one day I just applied to grad school and my agents didn't know, and my manager didn't know, and my family didn't know. And I thought, well, if I, if I get accepted, maybe I'll go to grad school. And once that train just left the station, it just never stopped. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad it didn't. Because you're reaching more people than the person in the footlights right now. And in a different way. In a different way, yeah. That's really special, and that's why I wanted you to do this. It's so funny that I'm interviewing you, and my focus is your social work when I'm like a fan of you on stage. <laughs> but that's where I, I like to, I'm, I'm wanting to, as you said earlier, give back. Because I think that mental health and spiritual health and emotional health is right now, I think, the only reason why I'm still in this business. If I hadn't done the work and had the right social work and had the right team and had the right support groups, I would be miserable. Right. So I think that having someone to talk to about this business is gonna make you happier in this business because it is personal. You get cut from something because they don't like you. There's something about you they don't like. Yeah, it's really not so much about your work as it is about your essence. And that's a hard blow. Yeah, and when they're like, oh, it's not personal. You're like, it's not personal to them, but it is personal to you. You just didn't fit the right puzzle piece. Right, and that's why you know in the radio show that we with like it really is about cultivating other sense of value in yourself and that's that takes a, a great deal of work yeah then surrounding yourself with people that support you and believe in you whether you're a singer you're a dancer you're a social worker you're a dog walker just people that think that you are great right and there's a lot of negativity i think in this business and be, and i think the negativity i'm finding is thriving because of the world right now, maybe not in the world, the country. We're fighting with, with people, we're fighting with each other, and even the solace of theater isn't uh, a safe place anymore because it's nothing is. Yeah, we're being taught by the highest levels of power in our culture to, to value conflict, discord, and the lack of compassion for other human beings. And the people on the right and the people on the left are following that lead, and so we've gotta find a place down the middle. And we will. Well, if the right part comes around for you, you said you'd go have a play that I'm trying to get readings. I'm getting readings done. So I'll give you a call and so you can you. just sit at a table, hopefully with Beth Level. She's going to play your mom. Oh, I mean, I'll do that any day. That was like one of the new things in my life is I now the past couple of years I've been playwriting and I get so many rejections. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, this is worse than theater. You mean when you send in oh, yeah. a, a transcript? Of the yeah, play? like six months later, you've totally forgot about it. And then you open up your email and you're like, we're sorry, we have no place for your work, which is the work's based on my life. It's so it's a whole new list of rejections, which is, it's fine. I mean, it's funny, I, you think I'd be used to it, but in a new medium, it's, it's still just, it's just- Well, it sounds like it's just as personal. Oh, yeah, I, I'm becoming more impervious because I have n more outlets now. It's not just theater, it's like, oh, now I'm playwriting, no, I have my podcast, no, now I'm teaching, now I'm doing this that because I have the, my blinders off, I'm happier in theater. Sure, or I, I just got this image of you, you know, sort of holding up all these plates, and if one were to drop and crack or, or break, you have all these other plates that you're holding and that, that you value. And you know, that's the idea. It's, it's, it's the attempt at balance. Yeah. yeah, and all my eggs aren't in one basket anymore. But that also took therapy. Sure. <laughs> and age. 
Yeah, and actually, I mean, the same for me. You know, it, it took therapy an age <laughs> to get to a place of realizing how important balance yeah. is. A person doesn't have to wait until they're in their 40s or their 30s to have this. They can start therapy in their 20s. They should. Yes. You know what I mean? So they don't, <laughs> they don't have to be like, oh, I learned this from age. They're like, no, I... I started self-exploring in my early 20s. Yeah. But I think there's also a, a shame with mental health. I know there was my generation of like people didn't go to therapy. It was like that meant you were mentally ill in a bad way as opposed to just being mentally unhealthy. Yeah. And I'm, you know, I had some clients in my first internship from Nigeria who said that the, the, the concept of mental health didn't even exist. Wow. So it, it's not that there's a stigma, it's that there's an absence. Yeah. And here it's different, but you're right. There's such a stigma, especially in older generations that, that to struggle mentally means, uh, to be weak. Mm. But the problem is, is that your body is smarter than you are and it will always find a way to express its difficulty. If there is an emotional issue that is repressed, that's underlying, that is not dealt with, and it might express itself somatically. Uh, it might express itself through addiction. It might express itself through interpersonal conflict, but it'll always be there. Mm. And so what needs to change is the realization and the comfort with the realization that everyone struggles mentally because we're human. Our psyches are complicated things to navigate at all times. And hopefully that acceptance can sort of begin to normalize for people the um, fact that we all need a little help. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for this. It was better than I expected because uh, you, well, you're awesome. Um, <laughs> so, so are you. Um, I love to end the, the podcast with a song that it could be anything. It could be from musical. It can be from an album of your grandfather's. Um, can it be a pop song? It can be anything. So the first song I ever, ever sang next to an upright piano in elementary school was I Can See Clearly Now. Ah. And that's sort of how I feel these days. I can see a lot clearer. So that would be an awesome ending. That's the perfect ending. You got it. Okay. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. It's gonna be a bright, 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 sunshiny day. It's gonna be a bright, bright, sunshiny day. I think I can make it now.